super dippy doop. <laughs> We're going to have fun today, aren't we? Welcome to my podcast. My dad podcast. <laughs> This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. If you live in Missouri, you can order a case of wine to be shipped from a winery directly to your doorstep. But if you happen to be one of those unfortunate people who lives across the border in Arkansas, you can't. And the reason why, at least partly, is the unique place of alcohol regulation in American federalism. In our last couple of episodes, we've talked about the concept of enumerated powers, the spending clause, the commerce clause, the necessary and proper clause, the supremacy clause, and the Tenth Amendment. But when we're talking about federalism and alcohol, we have to add in two more parts of the Constitution, the 18th and 21st Amendments. And that's going to require that we talk a bit about a doctrine called the Dormant Commerce Clause. All of these things come together in Granholm v. Heald in 2005, a case about state laws that prohibited wine from out-of-state wineries to be shipped direct to consumers, but allowed wine from in-state wineries to be shipped direct to consumers. Let's start with the basics here. Congress has an enumerated power to regulate commerce among the several states. One of the goals of giving that power to Congress was to promote national commerce and to prevent states from imposing additional burdens or tariffs on goods coming from out-of-state. We didn't want to have trade wars between the states. So if there's commerce going across state lines, then Congress gets to regulate that commerce. And from this principle, judges have inferred that states may not discriminate against interstate or international commerce in favor of intrastate commerce, or commerce that takes place just within the borders of one state. And this is called the Dormant Commerce Clause. So if the state passes some food safety or consumer protection regulations, for example, It has to apply those equally to in-state and out-of-state businesses. A state can't just hamstring interstate commerce by disadvantaging out-of-state business. So what does that mean in the case of a state law that disadvantages out-of-state wineries by preventing them from shipping directly to consumers while allowing in-state wineries to mail their wine right to you? The answer depends on how you understand the 18th and 21st Amendments. Brief review of the history here. In January of 1919, the states ratified the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. That amendment says, quote, After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territory subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. Section 2 of the 18th Amendment then says, The Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. We banned alcohol by constitutional amendment in the middle of a global flu pandemic, and then we let Congress and the states write laws to enforce that ban. Congress did this with the Volstead Act. The Volstead Act defined intoxicating liquor to include, quote, alcohol, brandy, whiskey, rum, gin, beer, ale, porter, and wine, and any other spiritus, vinous, malt, or fermented liquor, liquids, and compounds. And the Volstead Act prevented any person from manufacturing, selling, bartering, transporting, importing, exporting, delivering, furnishing, or possessing any intoxicating liquor. And it gave just a couple of limited exceptions, including using wine for medicinal or sacramental purposes. This whole experiment didn't work out very well. We remember the 1920s for its speakeasies and other underground drinking establishments. Families like the Kennedys made a lot of money in bootlegging, and organized crime exploded, as did the federal power necessary to meet it. 
The classic movie The Untouchables, if you're old enough to remember it, is about a famous ATF agent named Elliot Ness and his efforts to bring down the Chicago gangster Al Capone, who made his fortune violating the Volstead Act. Americans, it turns out, really like alcohol, and banning it by constitutional amendment created more problems than it solved. The whole episode of National Prohibition lasted until 1933, when the states ratified the 21st Amendment to the Constitution, which says simply, the 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. But then Section 2 of the 21st Amendment says this, listen carefully, the transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. In other words, after the 21st Amendment, the Constitution no longer bans alcohol nationally, but states still can ban alcohol if they want to. That can be their fight now. So if a state wants to put restrictions on the alcohol coming into its own borders, it can do that. And within its borders, a state can put all sorts of restrictions on alcohol. You can have state-owned liquor stores or dry counties. You can regulate the alcohol volume of beer or mandate when and where you can buy it. And now this takes us back to the question of Granholm versus Heald. Can a state ban the shipment of out-of-state wine? The 21st Amendment would seem to say yes. Can a state ban the shipment of in-state wine? This would seem to be one of the powers reserved to the states, and the answer to that also seems to be yes. Can a state do a combination of those things at the same time? Ban out-of-state shipments of wine, but allow in-state shipments of wine direct to consumers? That question's a little trickier. For commerce and just about anything else, the court's dormant commerce clause would require the state to treat any out-of-state and in-state industry the same. But here in the 21st Amendment, in black and white, it says that the transportation into any state of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws of that state is prohibited. And the Supreme Court here splits on just what this means for this case. The majority opinion written by Anthony Kennedy and joined by Scalia, Souter, Ginsburg, and Breyer argued that the dormant commerce clause analysis holds here. Nothing about the 21st Amendment changes that. Listen to how Justice Kennedy explains this, and then we'll circle back to the dissenting opinion written by Justice Stevens. When a state statute directly regulates or discriminates against interstate commerce, or when its effect is to favor in-state economic interests over out-of-state interests, we have generally struck down the statute without further inquiry. The first part of our analysis is whether these laws do discriminate against interstate commerce, contrary to the mandate of the Commerce Clause. The second part of the analysis is whether discriminatory state laws are permitted nevertheless by the 21st Amendment. We have little trouble concluding that the laws of both states do discriminate against interstate commerce in violation of well-established Commerce Clause principles. Time and again, the Court has held that in all but the narrowest circumstances. State laws violate the Commerce Clause if they mandate differential treatment of in-state and out-of-state economic interests and if that discrimination benefits the in-state interest and burdens the out-of-state interest. This rule is essential to the foundations of the Union. The mere fact of non-residence should not foreclose a producer in one state from access to markets in other states. States may not enact laws that burden out-of-state producers simply to give a competitive advantage to in-state businesses. The state contends that nevertheless their statutes are saved by Section 2 of the 21st Amendment. Uh, and Section 2 of that constitutional provision says as follows, the transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. The state's position that this provision 
saves their laws is, we hold, inconsistent with our precedent and with the history of the 21st Amendment. The aim of the 21st Amendment was to allow states to maintain an effective and uniform system for controlling liquor by regulating its transportation, importation, and use. The amendment did not give states the authority to pass non-uniform laws in order to discriminate against out-of-state goods, a privilege they had not enjoyed at any earlier time. Kennedy concludes that nothing about the 21st Amendment licenses the states to discriminate against out-of-state wineries, and so the court strikes down these state laws. One notable dissent came from Justice Stevens. He wrote, Today, many Americans, particularly those members of the younger generations who make policy decisions, regard alcohol as an ordinary article of commerce, subject to substantially the same market and legal controls as other consumer products. That was definitely not the view of the generations that made policy in 1919, when the 18th Amendment was ratified, or in 1933, when it was repealed by the 21st Amendment. On the contrary, the moral condemnation of alcohol use as a beverage represented not merely the convictions of our religious leaders, but the views of a sufficiently large majority of the population to warrant the rare exercise of the power to amend the Constitution on two separate occasions. The 18th Amendment entirely prohibited commerce and intoxicating liquors for beverage purposes throughout the United States and the territory subject to its jurisdiction. While Section 1 of the 21st Amendment repealed the nationwide prohibition, Section 2 gave the states the option to maintain equally comprehensive prohibitions in their respective jurisdictions. The views of judges who lived through the debates that led to the ratification of those amendments are entitled to special deference. Foremost among them was Justice Brandeis, whose understanding of a state's right to discriminate in its regulation of -of out-of-state alcohol could not have been clearer. And then Stevens quotes from this case in 1936 in Justice Brandeis's opinion. Brandeis says, The plaintiffs ask us to limit Section 2 of the 21st Amendment's broad command. They request us to construe the amendment as saying, in effect, The state may prohibit the importation of intoxicating liquors, provided it prohibits the manufacture and sale within its borders. But if it permits such manufacture and sale, it must let imported liquors compete with the domestic on equal terms. To say that would involve not a construction of the amendment, but a rewriting of it. In the years following the ratification of the 21st Amendment, states adopted manifold laws regulating commerce and alcohol, Stevens went on to say, and many of these laws were discriminatory. So-called dry states entirely prohibited such commerce. Others prohibited the sale of alcohol on Sundays. Others permitted the sale of beer and wine, but not hard liquor. Most created either state monopolies or distribution systems that gave discriminatory preferences to local retailers and distributors. The notion that discriminatory state laws violated the unwritten prohibition against balkanizing the American economy, while persuasive in contemporary times when alcohol is viewed as an ordinary article of commerce, would have seemed strange indeed to the millions of Americans who condemned the use of the demon rum in the 1920s and 1930s. Indeed, they expressly authorized the balkanization that today's decision condemns. Today's decision may represent sound economic policy and may be consistent with the policy choices of the contemporaries of Adam Smith who drafted our original Constitution. It is not, however, consistent with the policy choices made by those who amended our Constitution in 1919 and 1933. The arguments in this case from the majority opinion and from Justice Stevens' dissent bring to mind the fundamental debates always with us about how to interpret the Constitution. What weight do we give to precedent and doctrine, constitutional structures and inferences from constitutional provisions and historic intentions of those who drafted and ratified the amendments? And how much do our own policy preferences motivate our reasoning? 
This case involves all of those questions, and it divided the court into odd coalitions that defy our normal ideological categories. Justices Ginsburg and Scalia are together in the majority, and Justices Stevens and Thomas are together in the dissent, and Stevens's dissent essentially accuses Scalia of not being originalist enough. They're all working with the same basic constitutional materials, but constructing its meaning in very different ways. The end result of this, for those of you in Missouri, is that you may order a case of wine from an in-state winery, if you like sweet Missouri wine, or from out-of-state, if you have a more developed palate. And part of the reason why is found in the U.S. Constitution, as amended and in its interpretation by a majority of the justices on the Supreme Court of the United States.